Howdy, howdy, everyone. This is Volts for August 24th, 2022. Talking through the Inflation Reduction Act with Don't Look Up director Adam McKay. I'm your host, David Roberts. Last week, director Adam McKay, familiar to the climate community for his recent movie Don't Look Up, which he came on Volts to discuss, made a series of comments on Twitter critical of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Democrats' newly passed tax, health care, and climate bill. As is so often the case on Twitter, an extremely heated and unilluminating brouhaha ensued. It turns out that particular platform is not a great place for good faith discussion. So I reached out to McKay about the bill, and we thought it might be fun just for kicks to do another pod to address his various questions and reservations. Volt's listeners have heard me and other energy wonks talk about the bill quite a bit, but I thought it might be interesting to hear it hashed over with someone coming at it from a slightly different perspective. Anyway, if you have appetite for more IRA talk, it was a fun hour, and I think you'll enjoy it. All right, so without further ado, Adam McKay, welcome back to Volts. Mr. Roberts, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I was uh, actually saying to you that I made the crazy attempt to have discussions about the IRA bill online <laughs> and made the mistake of expressing some skepticism and uh, found myself in a 30 wrestler cage match <laughs> with people screaming at me, did you read the bill over and over again? And I thought, well, this is a waste of time. Maybe I'll just talk to someone who knows what they're talking about and we can have a <laughs> nuanced conversation. Imagine that. Yes, Twitter is a machine built to exacerbate every difficulty of human communication and eliminate <laughs> the few tools we have to overcome those barriers. Yeah, it's, it eliminates nuance, facial readings. Yes. It's basically like, you know, being involved in a traffic anger incident and thinking, I wish I could always talk to people like this. <laughs> I wish I could always talk to people surrounded by wreckage when everyone's inflamed and got, you know, uh, adrenaline spurting through their veins. And the weirdest thing of it, too, like not to go on and on about Twitter, but the weirdest thing is, you know, like you have a bunch of followers. I have a bunch of followers. There are a set of people on Twitter who have been following you and who know you to some extent, who sort of know your priors, know your background, know the other things you've said. And so are there having kind of a normal conversation with you, but the doors of Twitter are wide open. So just like any passing asshole can just wander in and be like, nah, he's an asshole. Like who, who doesn't know you from, you know, who doesn't know you from Adam, pardon the pun, who doesn't know anything about you, doesn't know anything about your priors can just wander in and be like, I'm going to take this tweet in the worst possible way. And you're there kind of simultaneously trying to have a conversations with both of those people. It's just dumb. It's not something humans were meant for. I think we all had times in our lives, usually in our 20s, where you would find the cool out of the way bar, maybe even not that cool, but it would become your bar. Mm -hmm. uh, we had one on Avenue A 
in like, what was it? Second Street called Psycho Mongos in the middle of the 90s. And it was like this empty old bar that we kind of took over. And every now and then a weird dude, and, and let's face it, it was usually dudes. Yeah, a it's weird dudes. dude would walk in and just blow the entire vibe and make it <laughs> Yes. And cheers like that, only it's like 600 people. <laughs> and they all have uh, Team Blue bumper stickers on their cars. <laughs> I have been uh, podcasting the ever-loving shit out of this bill, uh, <laughs> which you may or may not have noticed. I potted it when it was in the midst of being formed. I potted it when it came out. I've got two new pods going up this week in which me and uh, Jesse Jenkins get deep, deep into the wonky details. So, you know, it's on my mind. And uh, I know you are uh, a person that had some reservations and questions probably representative of, you know, a lot of other people out there who have objections and questions from the same kind of perspective. So I thought, what the hell? Let's keep potting. Let's <laughs> never stop potting. I appreciate it. I mean, I really, I've heard all the podcasts you've done about the bill and I feel like you're not a pushover. Uh, I feel like you have pretty good veteran skeptical eyes and uh, I've learned a lot from it. I did actually slog through reading the bill. Oh, I've read a brave. bunch of other analysis on the bill. And I have kind of a take, which I think is a little different, but not that different from what a lot of what you've been discussing and other people have been discussing. I mean, I think once again, Twitter tends to take whatever reservations you have and put them on full blast. I mean, that's... Yeah. By the way, it's no one's fault. It's the format. So when no, I say it's designed to be that way, yeah. So when I say I'm skeptical, I've seen a lot of empty theatrics from Democrats. Suddenly, I'm telling someone their healthcare from the ACA isn't valid, and it's like it just <laughs> tumbles over and over again. But you know, the big thing Twitter doesn't have is context, mm -hmm. and everyone kind of brings their own context, and I think. The uh, IRA is all about context of this moment that we're living in right now where, and feel free to jump in here and tell me, oh, I don't agree with that. But if I'm not mistaken, if we're going to do a little situational awareness check-in, <laughs> <laughs> you can see how free I am not being on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Uh, if we're going to do a little situational awareness check-in, does this seem right to you? We're about three years away from, without exaggeration, democracy as we know it in the U.S. going away, right? We got that SCOTUS decision hanging over us about giving states the right to overturn elections. Yep. Got lots of Republicans seated in those local offices, just ready to go. Yep. They've been working that. They've been grinding it. They've been looking at the laws, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or someone else. There's clearly a movement that is now organizing and getting a little smarter that is going for our democracy. So we know that's happening. So that's a major problem. Then we have a problem kind of above it, which is, to some degree, without exaggeration, the biggest problem we've ever confronted as human beings, as large mammals on this planet, the climate emergency, which is incomprehensibly massive. 
So you have these two problems that are a smaller one running next to a giant one. And I look at the bill through that lens. So as far as addressing the first problem, which is the future of American democracy, which is obviously connected to the climate, I would say the bill is a failure. I would say that losing the cap on the insulin for people not covered by government insurance was a major blow because what we need to be doing right now more than anything is showing people that government can work for them that aren't billionaires across party lines. And that was an opportunity with the insulin cap. That is an issue that cuts right across red and blue that would have been immediately beneficial to millions of people and save lives and save bank accounts and homes. And that was a big deal. And that was the part that led me to get really angry at the Democrats because they rolled over to the parliamentarian, which is one of their favorite little moves. Suddenly they get very uh, respectful of the parliamentarian. And I really did think that was a bit of a charade. And I thought it was a really damaging charade. Uh, Now, this stuff about the loopholes for, you know, private equity and that stuff, yeah, that wasn't great, but that wasn't stuff that your average person's going to feel immediately. And I think as far as what we need to be doing, we need to be passing things that people can feel. There's a great story about Saudi Arabia during the Arab Spring uprising, where country after country was going like dominoes. And the family of uh, Saud just cut a check for everyone in the country. I think it was for $25,000. <laughs> and you know what? It worked. <laughs> they didn't have a revolution. And don't get me wrong, the second COVID stimulus bill was pretty darn good. But the fact that we're losing elements of that now, like the child tax credit, I think is really dangerous. So I would, under that heading, call the bill a straight up failure. I would be that harsh on it. And as you know, the future of our democracy is tied to action on climate because unfortunately, this Republican Party is going to do zilch when it comes to climate. A lot of them don't even believe it's real, don't care. We've seen the way they behaved under COVID, where they were telling their own supporters basically to die. So I do think it's connected to climate. Where I think it gets a lot more interesting and a lot more nuanced is climate, which is where I've been listening to you. I've been reading a lot of interesting climate people out there, hearing a lot of different opinions. and. That's the part I think that is more about your show. And in that regard, it is more nuanced. There's a lot of really good things in the bill. The uh, tax incentives are pretty simple and straightforward, but the immediacy of them, the amount of money behind them. Mm -hmm. And here's my favorite part. The way that they're paid for, I think, is really an incredible model for the future that uh, stock buyback tax, I love. Yeah, that's good stuff. Love it doing backflips about it. I really think stock buybacks are just the dirtiest, grimiest move you can do. And the idea of taking a little hit on that, I thought the uh, minimum tax for the corporations, although you know plenty of them will game it, I still think that was awesome. A lot of really good things. I thought this stuff with the drug pricing is good, although if you notice, they delayed the rollout of that. So you don't get that immediate hit for voters across red and blue lines. Before we jump into the substance of the bill, then let me just respond a little bit on the context thing, because I think you're absolutely right that 
I mean, this is true in all of politics, sort of your assessment of any given event or bill is going to be contingent on your assessment of the sort of context around it. Sure. So I'll just say, and, I, and I've written this on the site a number of times, I have been saying from the second Biden and the Democrats took office in 2020, we are on a trajectory toward one party rule <laughs> in this country. This is not a reversal of that trajectory. This is a brief reprieve from the trajectory where our democracy is falling apart. And while Democrats are in here, you know, it's very likely that a Democratic trifecta, both houses of Congress and the presidency, we are unlikely to see that again for at least a decade, maybe decades, maybe ever. Like, you know, I'm leery about long-term predictions in politics since everything changes constantly, but at least a decade out, like all the trends that are making it more difficult for Democrats to win you know, just the built-in ones, electoral college, the skewed, you know, representation of rural people in the Senate, the gerrymandering on and on. And now with all these voting repression rules and all these, and all these Republicans in local office threatening to literally just give their state's votes to Trump on and on and on. So my whole frame around this has always been Democrats have two years here to um, do what they can to forestall these trends and to try to convince Americans that government can be competent and do things. So in the big picture, I totally agree with you. And specifically on climate, I've just been saying, beating the table over and over again, trying to get this through the heads of Democrats and Democratic staffers. This is it. You are going to have one shot yeah. at national climate legislation. And that's probably going to be it for national climate legislation for a long time. And if we don't get it, you know, when you say about uh, uh, me not being a pushover, I hope that's right, because what we were looking at a few weeks ago is nothing coming out of this process, no reconciliation bill, at which point Democrats would have pivoted to trying to frame the other stuff they'd done as a success, right? They would have to because they're in they're, they're in political races. They got to make the best of what they got. But I was perfectly prepared to say, no, this is total failure. Without this bill, it's total failure on climate. There's some stuff in the infrastructure bill, but not anything that reduces uh, emissions, especially over the crucial next decade. So I was perfectly prepared to call bullshit on Dems if they tried to spin that shit sandwich into a, a happy meal. So that was the big context. But the smaller context, the more immediate context was three weeks ago, it really looked like nothing was going to happen. It really looked like Manchin was just going to take his toys and go home. And he had total power and total ability to do so. So to me, the fact that anything happened at all is a miracle. This yeah. is all to be compared to nothing, right? This is not oh, yeah. to be compared to some other better, fancier bill. It's all to be compared to what if nothing had happened, which would have been an unmitigated disaster. So we trimmed the disaster back a little bit, right? We, we like that's what Democrats have done is maybe they won't get epically, historically shellacked in 2022. Maybe they might even fight to sort of kind of a draw and only lose one House of Congress. Like, that's great. And it's great that we're going to accelerate clean energy. Like, all of this is compared to nothing. But I do agree that in terms of arresting the slide to single party rule, I mean, you kind of got to just judge what's happened so far a failure. I agree that the climate parts are not going to galvanize 
people in the same way that like writing them checks (laughs) would have or, or, you know, reducing the cost of their drugs on and on. But this was our last chance for climate legislation and it happened. I like where you're at. Let's stay in context a little bit longer for the climate because the comparison I think of is back in the 90s when I was at Saturday Night Live and I was head writer for like three years and sometimes we would do a dress rehearsal. It was just abysmal. Mm-hmm. It was just and, and we would look at it and we'd go, holy Lord, like, what are we going to do? Like, we got to call the network and tell them to like <laughs> pretend there was a power outage or something. <laughs> we can't go on. And Lauren's such a steely veteran. He would just be like, it's going to be fine. We're going to do this. <laughs> we would all rally. We would do rewrites. We would cut the seats that were not savable. And this happened a bunch of times in the three years that I was head writer. And what would end up happening is by the time we went to air, it was a respectable show. Like we would put the show on, a couple sketches would get nice laughs. There were a couple that weren't great. And we would all leave the building sky high. Exactly. The audience doesn't know to compare the show to a shitty previous version, right? But you do. Yeah. And so I know we talk to friends and I'd be like, hey, do you see this show? And they'd be like, yeah, like, so what? <laughs> and I'd be like, no. It, it didn't suck. <laughs> So I feel like this is a repeating kind of thing for the Democrats, like ACA. Well, there is some good stuff in the ACA. There definitely is. You can stay on your parents' insurance longer, you know, free sort of checkup kind of stuff. There are people getting insurance out of it, but it wasn't the bill that we needed in that moment. Dodd-Frank, same kind of thing. Well, for this moment... And then if you go to climate, I don't know if it could be any bigger. I mean, Dave, I'm curious what you think, because I've been stunned. I was a guy who was freaking out about climate for quite a while now. And even I'm stunned by how fast it's moving. Yes. And this is a, another key bit of context, which I just want to underline here and, and italicize and whatever uh, else analogy, which is one of the big pieces of context that has to inform our assessment of what came out of this process is there was the full democratic agenda. The entire thing was, was shoved in that original Build Back Better bill and pieces of it got whacked and whacked and whacked and whacked and almost all of it got whacked and climate almost alone survived that process. And that to me is just like a political fact in need of explanation. Like that's a remarkable thing. Yeah. And also the reality of climate just jumped three notches. I mean, I was over in Europe when it happened that, you know, England hit the highest temperature possibly in like 25,000 years, certainly in (laughs) history. And what was it? 41 something degrees Celsius, uh, 150 degrees. It was insane. And the fires in Spain and Portugal and the crazy heat. I mean, you could just list that type of stuff for, for an hour. It's like most of that stuff is just blurring into the background now, but we are in fact living through serial disaster after disaster after disaster. It's hard to even sort of catalog them all. And then we've got the Colorado River now is at like 25% capacity. I mean, we're really talking about the idea that the Southwest could have no water in like 
three years. I mean, like that that's me guesstimating, but we're in that range. So that's the other sort of context to drop on the climate part. And that cuts both ways. That cuts the way towards what you just said, which is it's amazing we got all of these elements in this bill because man, oh man, do we need them as sort of the first few notches in the rock face that we can start to get some sort of momentum to hopefully climb upwards with. But then it also points out the fact that, I mean, truthfully, this is a bill that probably should have been around 25 years ago, (laughs) Uh, but reality is reality. So I understand that. If you dig into the bill, the parts that concern me are the methane fines, I think, are easily gained. I think that's like the oil companies were laughing at that, that it's contingent on the EPA enforcing. is just like, I actually heard you when you did the uh, interview with, uh, who was it, Jenkins and Stokes. When they mentioned that, I actually heard you make a sound like, oh, and then they kind of went forward like (laughs) that part's like if you're an oil company lobbyist, of which there are plenty, that's like, you know, uh, Miles Garrett for the Browns shedding two blockers like you don't even notice that. Oh, I don't know. I think that's too pessimistic. I will say, though, that that piece is characteristic of many, many, many pieces of the bill, which is that the actual effect it has you know, how good it turns out to be or bad is going to depend hugely on implementation, which just goes to say that like the fight is not over. Biden's EPA can be pushed. You know, methane monitoring is getting a lot better. They're starting to be able to use satellites and drones and everything and not depend on oil company self-reporting. So the fight goes on in that respect and a bunch of other respects. By the way, 100% fair. A lot of what I've been pushing back on is this weird combination where people are freaked out about the loss of our democracy, so they want to cheer a victory for the Democrats, and the realities of the climate change and the fact that the challenge is so massive, we need to look at it with sober level eyes. And and none of that can be typified more than the Paul Krugman op-ed. And by the way, nothing against Paul Krugman. He's written a lot of great stuff. But he wrote an op-ed a couple days ago where the headline was literally, did Democrats just save civilization? And I'm like, I strongly suspect that he did not (laughs) write that headline. I can tell you as a veteran of news organizations, the drive to hype headlines is nigh irresistible. I understand. But if I'm Paul Krugman and I see that headline, I'm like, guys, guys, no, no, no. And if you read, and I'm sure you did read his piece, it definitely had some pom-pom waving. We need to make this a great moment quality to it, which once again, I want to say, I understand we're in incredibly tricky, delicate times right now. But When it came to this bill with climate, I just was really concerned that a lot of people were going to see these headlines and think like, oh, we passed the bill. And there were a lot of headlines out there and a lot of pieces that were written that had that quality to it. Uh, So the the methane, by the way, I think your answer to that concern is spot on. I think it's vigilance. I think we got to stay on all of this. Everything in this bill, when it comes to climate, we got to just... A lot of it's going to go through states. A lot of it's going to go through utilities. A lot of it's going to go through uh, public utility commissions, all of which, 
you know, could go either way and are subject to public pressure. So a hundred percent. The other thing that worried me is just because I always go back to the fact that, you know, our press doesn't talk about it a whole lot, but you know, and, and most people know that there's just a giant network of billions of dollars of lawyers and lobbyists and economists and thinkers and framers and think tanks in DC that swarms over all of this stuff. And I just got the feeling that the oil companies were like, yeah, you're going to give us, <laughs> you're going to give us six, what was it? Five or six projects that have been contested, uh, uh, oil pipelines, drilling type projects that have been fought by activists. You're going to give us those and you're going to give us a yearly guarantee of federal lands. We'll take that. Mm-hmm. And on the back end, we'll kill the other stuff because they're so confident in their ability and the control they have over the government and representatives. And that was the other thing that scared me is I wish they had fought them harder on some of the language around that stuff. Like I I didn't love that the oil companies, if I'm not mistaken, and once again, you know the bill better than I do, is it not true that the oil companies get first dibs on the federal land, whether it's in the ocean or federal lands? I don't think so. I think it's just... um there's sort of two separate obnoxious provisions. And let me pause here and back up a second, because I think here is another area where sort of your context shapes how you view the outcome. Like, so for me, the context was you need 50 votes in the Senate, which means every senator has more or less absolute power to veto the bill unless it has what they want. And as we know, there was one asshole uh, willing to exploit that power to the max. Uh, David, I know Michael Bennett, and he's a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> what? There are other senators? I forgot the other 49 names because I've been so <laughs> fucking obsessed for so long. But all of which is to say that by the end of this process, you know, everybody thought Manchin was just going to scrap the whole thing. And basically, Schumer and everybody else were saying to him, literally, write a bill. Tell us what you want. Give us anything that's better than nothing and we'll sign off on it. I mean, it was slightly pathetic, but that was the, the situation they were in. It was all came down to Manchin. So in that context, Manchin could have done anything he wanted yeah. to this bill. He could have done anything. And relative to what the kind of dark places my imagination goes, you know, like relative to the kinds of things he could have done, I think the changes he actually made to the bill are, in the grand scheme of things, relatively small. All that said, if you're in one of those five communities where the legislature just did an end run around due process to jam fossil fuel projects into your communities that you've been fighting for years, obviously the very big picture can fuck off. (laughs) You know, like you're absolutely right to be infuriated by those. So that was one piece, the five projects. And the other piece is just, to the extent you lease land to wind and solar, you have to make available for lease X amount of land for oil and gas. So, but my take on that is, I mean, the amount of federal land relative to private land that oil and gas companies have is relatively small. The amount of federal land that's actually available for lease is relatively small, but the amount that's extra that's made available for lease in this bill is relatively tiny and marginal compared to the total amount of federal land they have access to. So 
what's going to determine how much U.S. land gets exploited for fossil fuels is not this bill and is not likely to be any kind of prohibition from the federal government. It's going to be the economics of oil and gas. And as Jesse is fond of emphasizing, according to the modeling, this bill is going to cause oil, total U.S. oil and gas demand to decline for the first time ever, ever in the country's history. And that, you know, like destroying their market is going to do way, way, way more to prevent exploitation than anything that could have been put in this bill. So, you know, it's all a context, like how big of a concession to Manchin is that it sucks, but like he could have done much worse. Yeah. I mean, what scared me about it, because once again, I mean, let's face it, the oil lobbyists wrote that stuff for him. Once they said anything you want, he called the American Petroleum Institute or he called whatever law firm represents Exxon. He goes, all right, guys, what do you want? I don't even know about that because I feel like they would have demanded more. If they'd gotten to write the bill, I feel like they would have put much more in it. And I don't think it's accurate at all to say that they like this bill. They don't want a bill that's going to send oil and gas demand down for the first time ever. They would much rather there be no bill. I mean, for all, whatever you think about these provisions. The side pipeline deal that Manchin's going for, that literally was written by the American Petroleum Institute. Yes, that's worth being nervous about. And a fight that still is playing out, by the way, just so listeners know, that's not none of that is written in stone yet. So can we jump back to context for a second here? Because <laughs> yes. a second, I, when you were talking, like, I love what you're saying. I'm on the train. Like, please <laughs> let this reduce carbon. You know, our futures, uh, which are barreling towards us much quicker than we ever thought, depend on it. But here's the thing that drives me a little crazy about the Democrats is they ignore a lot of tools of politicking that are time tested tools. And and here's what I mean. If you looked at what Jon Stewart did with the VA coverage for veterans who were near the burn pits, Mm -hmm. the Republicans used it as kind of a nasty cudgel to smack the Democrats because they didn't like that they were going to get a... Which, like, can we just pause? What a dickhead move. Oh, I mean, just sociopathic, (laughs) uh, petty, like five-year-old sociopathic move. No question. (laughs) So what did Stewart do? He went out. And he worked a different kind of bully pulpit. He worked a bully pulpit of, I'm a celebrity, I'm charismatic. And he went on like Newsmax, he went on programs everywhere, and he shamed the hell out of them. Mm -hmm. And now the other things I would throw into this bag, you can do that. You can overturn the filibuster, which we know for some reason Democrats get very gray-haired and institutional about, even though it's not part of the Constitution. It was something that was added later. I think it was Aaron Burr actually added it. I did a whole pod on this. It's an accident. Yes. Yeah. Burr didn't mean for, yeah. And so you have the filibuster, you have the parliamentarian, which conveniently the Democrats get very cowering about, well, the parliamentarian, like, no, you can replace the parliamentarian. You can overrule the parliamentarian. So There's all these things, but I would say first among them is to hit the talk shows, hit the bully pulpit. Democrats never do it, never do it with any passion. There's no one really out there. Bernie's the one guy who kind of does it a little bit Elizabeth Warren. The rest get really sleepy and bureaucratic and don't seem to really either want to deal with the moment or understand the moment. And 
I have a hard time cruising past that because we've seen it work so well for years and we never got to see Manchin hit with that stick. A couple of things I'd say about that. One is, you know, John Stewart is, I would say, among a relatively small and shrinking class of public figures in the U.S. who has not been thoroughly pulled into one side or the other or is not has not been thoroughly sort of attached in their public image to one side or another still has some independence and so can go on Newsmax and even though probably dismissed by like you know 85% of the people watching there is some small percentage of people who he can reach in a way that I just don't think any Democrat could. I mean, there are some interesting political... People used to say this about Obama all the time, right? He should use the bully pulpit more. And if you look at the political science, what you often find is when a president inserts himself in something like this, he has the effect of making it more partisan, basically just signaling to the public, oh, this is their side's thing, which does not have the effect of persuading the other side. It often has blowback. Like by the end of his presidency, I think Obama was aware of this and quite wisely often stayed back out of things because that's the only way they could happen because once he stepped up and was the face of it, suddenly everybody on the right knew, oh, this is bad. We hate this. And I feel like that's basically what what happens when Democrats, you know, I agree they could communicate much better. I've, I've, I've ranted about this for years, but I feel like in terms of people who can you know, talk in a way that is not immediately taken as partisan. John Stewart's kind of, you know, part of a shrinking handful. I'm not sure who could have really successfully done that. I don't know if I agree with that because I just haven't seen many examples of them even trying. Like for me, the big one is minimum wage. There's just really no way around the fact that it's $7 and change for a minimum wage, which still applies, I think, in more than half the states, that's that's just a win. That's just you you go out, you hit the bully pulpit, you talk about the fact that you can't even be poor on that kind of money, mm-hmm. and at least raise it to twelve, at least or even God, even ten. I mean, there and that's not enough. I mean, but you got to say they did try to do that. That was that was in the Build Back Better bill. Like that is part of their agenda. Let me bounce it back to you. What stopped it? Uh, I don't even remember what stage of the process that got whacked up. Parliamentarian took it out. And uh, they were like, oh, well. Well, this is the thing, too, is, is, I mean, this was part of what was so poison and terrible about this dynamic over the last two years. Like, it's funny, the last two or three days, I've been like Mr. Cheerful Celebration guy. It's a little, it's a little weird after spending the last two years just absolutely miserable and totally pessimistic. But part of what was so wretched about the last two years is you need Mansion, You need Mansion's vote. You got to get it. He's withholding it, I think, on some level, because he knows that as long as he's withholding that final vote... Dems can't really do anything else to piss him off or he can pull it and doing anything to the filibuster would have pissed him off. And like, you know, making this hyper-partisan would have pissed him off. Any sort of procedural radicalism, if they tried to overcome the parliamentarian, Manchin would have lost his fucking mind and we would have lost his vote. And he kept that leverage right up until the literal last week, literally the last week he could have done it. Like he kept that leverage. And I think, um, and it's galling, but on the other hand, like if you're dealing with this vain dimwit, who's perfectly willing to explode your agenda, you know, like what's the alternative? 
They tried to tiptoe around him. A lot of people were saying, oh, pressure him, pressure him, beat him up, beat him up. I just, he's such a vain egotist. I feel like that would have just sent him running. He doesn't care if the whole thing dies. It look, he looks better in West Virginia if he kills the whole thing. So I just don't know. Like Democrats were constrained by that. Whether you think they should have been or could have found some other way around it, that's, I think, why they were so constrained. I've just seen this game on repeat for a lot of years because it wasn't Manchin, it was Max Baucus. If it wasn't Max Baucus, it's Joe. Well, there used to be a bunch of more mansions. So like, like Obama was dealing with the Democratic Senate caucus that had like 20, you know, mansions in it. So I have two responses to that idea. One is, why are we electing these people? Isn't it better to not have the Senate and or to not have power and go, okay, Republicans, like let Joe Manchin be like, stop having this sort of neutered power, which just makes Democrats look awful and corrupt. Isn't it better to actually be a unified focused party? And then the second part of it is. Uh, well, no, it isn't for a bunch of reasons, but the main one is judges. We've gotten a historic amount of female and judges of color. And basically just we've been funneling dozens and dozens of judges onto the federal bench. And you can't do that without the Senate like that alone. Like even if you can't pass any legislation, just having a majority is way better. Well, what would happen if you said rather than the Democratic Party primarying progressives, what if they primary corporatists and we swung the party in that direction? I mean, I think we're missing a big truth, which is that Democrats are like filthy with big money. I mean, of like, course, the whole system is, you know, Nancy Pelosi said out loud, insider is a good thing. Chuck Schumer said, hey, bankers are my constituents, too. I mean, these are dirty, dirty politicians. And this game of there's always a Max Bach is a Joe man. Oh, darn. We tried. I'll tell you one thing, regardless of my opinion, and this gets back to our democracy is in the balance, people aren't buying it anymore. And the Roe versus Wade thing, the Dobbs thing, I've never seen that kind of populist anger come out. Like friends of mine in the comedy world who never talk about politics were suddenly saying, maybe blue, no matter who, maybe it does matter who it is. Like there was an anger that came from that. And I think this bill, ultimately, I would have rather we tried. The, the second part of what I was going to say is we've just never tried the idea of, OK, Joe Manchin, you want to screw with this? You are going to be an historic villain. You are going to be the most reviled human being on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. All right, Christian Cinema, you will not get reelected. You will have to become a lobbyist. Everyone you knew in the past now thinks you're despicable. That sort of pressure, whether it's through direct action, through politicians, through the narrative in the media, I just, I'm 54. I've never seen that tried every time. It's like, well, you got to be nice to Max Baucus. You got to be nice to Joe Lieberman. We need well, it. Well, I mean, we return to the structural disadvantages Democrats face in the Senate. Like, if you primary Joe Manchin, you're doomed. No one more liberal than Joe Manchin is going to win in West Virginia. And that's true. A lot of these purple states, like, Democrats just don't have a lock on enough states to get true blue Democrats, 50 of them. I've never seen the approach of let's elect, let's primary corporatists and put in pro-worker Dems. Like, once again, I'm 54. So I basically came of age 
at the beginning of kind of the right wing slash neoliberal push towards corporatism. And my entire life, the message has always been, don't put a candidate in West Virginia that wants to raise the minimum wage. Like, why? Have we ever seen this tried? Like, Well, also, another bit of context I throw in here, too, is, and I feel like this is not very well appreciated, is that relative to, like the House and the Senate both, relative to where they were under Obama, are a lot bluer. Like, the Senate now contains... Lots and lots of really good dims, way more than it used to. Like proportionally, as everything divides and partisanizes and the number of purple states dwindles, more and more, like if you're a Democrat, you're going to be a fairly left Democrat. Like the number of mansions has definitely shrunk, but correspondingly, the size of the majority has shrunk too. So we're sort of like, you know. I think when you really talk it through, like we're talking it through, I kind of like that we stayed in context for a little while because it really all comes back to the filibuster. Yes, this all this is always true of politics. It's all like, what's the counterfactual? It's got to go. It's got to go. Uh, like our democracy, we're never going to have sixty Democrats nope. in the Senate that are cool. Nope. And that, and now they're talking about. I think they have. I don't know if Manchin's spoken up on it, but now they're talking about like, oh, we'll make an exception for the filibuster for the, the right to choice. Like that's, okay, we'll do that next time. And they've more or less promised. And they're like, oh, we'll make an exception for the filibuster for voting laws. I believe they've said that too. And it's going to only take one or two of those until everybody's just like, dudes, what is the pretense? Like what? <laughs> now that you can bypass the filibuster anytime you want to, it's even more of a hollow, dippy, you know, sort of anachronism than it was. I don't think it's going to last, but like all of the political forecasts show, you know, even if Dems keep the Senate in 2022, which is like a kind of a long shot, getting a little bit less of a long shot possible, even so 2024 is incredibly inclement circumstances and every forecast shows that Republicans are going to take the Senate and the Senate is just structurally balanced structurally in favor of Republicans. So you got to worry, like, if you kill the filibuster and then we enter a period of, like, Republicans dominating the Senate for the next two decades. Well, the Republicans will just create exceptions. They did it with the Supreme Court. Yeah, they'll kill it. They'll kill kill it for sure. They operate like a shark. They just move wherever the... Yeah. Well, I would just say you have the money in the background. You're absolutely right that the whole system's a wash in money. You're absolutely right that Joe Manchin has oil and gas, his hand up his butt, making his mouth move. You're right that there's like lots of crappy Dems in the Senate. I would just say, given all that, (laughs) that just highlights what a friggin' miracle it is that all 50 of them voted for a relatively big bill. Like I just still amazed. So let's land back in the climate. So let me get excited with you here. Here's what (laughs) I like about it. There's breadcrumbs. There's a trail of forward movement in this bill, which you know as much as anyone with what's going on with climate right now. It's moving so much faster and so much more deadly. And I mean, did you see trees in the Arctic tundra? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's just another headline drifting by. Oh, trees in the Arctic. Interesting. Yeah, it was yeah. supposed to happen for a hundred years. We keep so anyway. So you have this massive leviathan that's about to roll over us, and the trail that this bill sort of 
hacked through the, you know, the thick uh, brush could potentially become a life save. Like it really could save lives because it's possible in four years, five years, six years, Colorado River is almost dry, heat events are worse, fires are worse. Even Republicans are like, holy crap. Uh, because COVID's one thing. It comes silently. It mostly struck the elderly. I, I thought it was, I lost four people from COVID, so I'm not being flip about it. But to watch the Republicans tell their own base to die from it. And to watch the base say, ha, yeah, fuck yeah, let's die from it. It's oh, just amazing. But climate, you know, you burn, like you flee, you floods, like I, we just had a meeting. We're working on a project with uh, Bong Joon-ho. We're adapting Parasite into a TV show. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Ooh, it, that's it, very exciting. Well, I was talking to Duho, his producer, who's a great guy, and we were talking about the fact that Parasite just came true. The basement apartment flooded, and Duho and Bong, director Bong, were kind of messed up by it. Like, they were really upset. And... I told them, I, I said, like, hey, look, we know all this is coming. We've known it for a while. You guys shouldn't feel upset, should feel sad for the people. But but anyway, this giant, gnarly Leviathan is about to roll over all of us. So my biggest thing I'm excited with, besides the fact that, God, I, I really hope it spurs a whole new economy in the States of green tech and cars, mm-hmm. I pray to literally pray to uh, to God or uh, the mysterious cosmos, whoever you want to pray to. <laughs> um, I really hope that happens. But I do think no matter what, at its most brutal interpretation, the kind of rough path they cut through the jungle of tax, you know, stock buybacks, minimum you know, drug, you can negotiate certain drug prices so the federal government has more money. I love that plan. I'm very worried about the one-to-one thing with the green and the federal lands. I hope what you're saying is true. Yeah. I would almost bet that in 10 years, we'll look back on that and we'll see that very little of that land was leased, very little was exploited, and that other things had much more effect on oil and gas than that. That's just my guess. That's my bet. And the other thing that just worries me is the old deal with the devil we made where we gave the oil companies the right to export oil in exchange for tax incentives for wind and solar. And then those tax incentives expired and the oil companies just drilled and drilled and drilled. But you know what? There's kind of nothing you can do about that because if we're about to have Ron DeSantis as an autocratic ruler, I mean, it kind of shakes the Etch-A-Sketch anyway. So so I won't dwell on that too much. Um, But ultimately, with the climate, I I do nudge out on the side of positive with a ton of hope. Yeah, two things. Let me just uh, insert real quickly uh, to respond to that point. I I would say your hope should have two sides. One is, you know, climate's going to get worse. People are going to notice. People are going to have to respond in the next decade. You're absolutely right. But- This is one thing I feel like I've learned or that I've come to appreciate about U.S. politics that I wish I could convey to everybody is just that the entire system is built to do nothing. The entire thing is designed to thwart action. Any action is miraculous, but this bill is going to make every subsequent step easier. Like all you're going to get are steps. You're not going to get this big revelatory, like finally we get it. 
We're going to revolutionize everything. It's just America is not built for that, but you're going to get steps. And this step is going to make the next step easier. Every bit that these technologies come down in cost is going to make the next politician's decision to prioritize them easier. And this is going to make the EPA's subsequent decisions easier. And states, it's going to make it easier for states. Like I just heard, uh, you know, I was reading on Twitter about uh, somebody who works on energy policy in Montana saying about this bill, like this bill makes things that we have been thinking of as impossible in this state, absolutely possible and next on our agenda. So climate's going to be pressuring from one side, but on the other side, all of this money is going to be going towards boosting competitors to fossil fuels. And those twin pressures, I think, are going to produce faster action than I think people are expecting. I think that's kind of the rough trail that I'm talking about that has been cut, that you now have a hint of a pathway forward, whereas before there was none. Uh, at least there's some structures here that if this thing hits us like a, a wave right in the face, which it's going to, there are some moves that have already been laid down. I agree. You know, the other thing, what do you think about the chips bill? Because that had some hidden goodies in it. Yes, I think it was $67 billion or something like that. Some large number is going to be spent on clean energy research. And there's stuff in the infrastructure bill, too. Like, there's a, it's a... You know, like if you put together everything that the Democratic Congress has done, it's a pretty wide ranging, uh, you know, there's climate stuff throughout all of it. And I think that the chips bill is like, these are the kind of things that are difficult to model, you know, when you're pouring money into research, you know, and stuff like that, you can't really predict the outcomes. But I think that's a huge long term driver, too, is just the the I mean, this is one of the things I've been most excited about over the over the last five to 10 years is. You know, you remember you made a whole movie about it. It used to be that if you're a hotshot, privileged, wealthy, young kid coming out of college, you're going to get swarmed by friggin' hedge funds. And, you know, you're going to you're going to end up a fine. If you want to be if you want status among your peers, that's where you go. You go make a kajillion dollars at a hedge fund or something. It is slowly becoming true that if you're a young hotshot out of college and you want to make your impression on the world, looky here, like here's the biggest problem in the world, all this money flooding into it, all this technological innovation happening all around you, all these billionaires being minted by people who are finding new technologies and new ways to do this. Like this is the hot shit now. And that's just going to be a magnet for a lot of brain power and a lot of private money to follow this public money. You know what I'm going to do, David? I'm going to let your ending of this podcast stand. <laughs> I liked your upswing. I liked it. you. You were. You were. <laughs> I'm trying so hard, man. You were balancing it with being realistic. I feel like you acknowledged the context. Um, I think we both acknowledge if it's uh, the Florida governor or Trump, then it's shake the etch a sketch. So what? Are, what are you going to do at that point? But everything you're saying, I, I'm going to go with you on it. I I really do think the carbon removal research is obviously first and foremost, no more fossil fuels, green energy first and foremost. But the fact that we're already at 1.3 degrees Celsius up yeah. and at what, 423 ppm, I think we're going to have to have some degree of carbon removal because we've kind of already damn. I mean, the, the hood is smoking at this point. And that's, I mean, that's always been the wonks. They've always said it's a two-part strategy. One, dump a bunch of money on the stuff that's on the verge 
right? So just push it out into mass market. And number two, dump a bunch of money into this stuff that we're going to need yeah. in a decade or so, like hydrogen, like carbon removal, stuff like that. And that is what this bill did. I mean, the beautiful part of this bill to my wonk's heart is it is still at its core the bill that these Capitol Hill staffers, these nerds in their caves down below the Capitol doing the real work and the real research, putting together like really expert well-researched bill. And a lot of those details just never come to public light. Nobody ever debates them. Manchin probably doesn't even know about them, but there's a lot of good wonky thinking embedded in here that survived the whole process. Well, Leah Stokes, who, who you had on, worked on this bill, right? And, and did Jenkins as well? Yes. They've all given <laughs> years of their lives to battling through this. No, they're smart mofos. My final positive note, this is so weird for me, Adam. If we talk again in a couple of weeks, I'll be back to normal. My final positive note is just if looking back over the U.S. clean energy industry, you know, it was bleak in 2000. It was bleak. Those were very expensive. And like Obama did the stimulus bill, put $90 billion toward wind and solar and the rest of it, drove down those prices, expanded that industry. Congress passed the credit extenders several times boosted those industries, helped those industries grow. Now we're going to dump a bunch more money. So the, the government has done good things and it has resulted in a vast and rapidly growing clean energy industry in the U.S. So it did help. It did. So public life can work. Government can work is, is all I want to say. Exports were grisly. Yeah, that was gross. Nasty. So I think the nasty has to be accounted for. Here's what I'm going to jump back on your positive side. What I like about this bill is it's 10 years. Yes. All those extenders on the tax credit. Huge. Two years. And a lot of the power companies and industries couldn't account yeah. for two-year tax breaks. But the biggest thing going for this bill is that it's 10 years. Yes. Predictability. That's the runway now. Like yeah. everybody, everybody sees this is the direction we're going. It's all about speed now, right? It's all about how fast we're going to go, but I don't think there's any body left with any illusions. Like this is what we're doing now. And this absolutely cements that into place. So here's how I end this podcast. If it was a film, <laughs> I do us kind of positive and cheery. And then I smash cut to like a steak restaurant where three oil lobbyists are eating crab cakes and <laughs> listening to this podcast on their phone and just laughing. <laughs> uh, I, th I don't know. I think this idea that oil industry lobbyists are these sort of Manichaean figures that are pulling all the strings and know everything. Like I've met some of those people. They're not, they're just uh, dumbasses like everybody else. They don't know what's going to happen. Like nobody knows what's going to happen. They're scrabbling for their bits and pieces, but I don't know that they have this Machiavellian view of things. Like everybody's winging it. Oil and gas is winging it too. It's not Machiavellian because it's really just one interest, which is fossil fuels. But we're working on a movie right now that's about the whole lobbying government influence kind of state. So we've been interviewing a lot of people and doing that. Interesting. It is, I mean, because I came into it like it's bad. And now we're in the middle of it. I'm like, oh, it's a thousand times worse. Than <laughs> it's I real gross. Because some of these men and women are really, really smart. I mean, they are uber geniuses. They're usually not the ones you're going to shake hands with at the steak restaurant or meet at the cocktail party. They're the, the throat slitters that are way deep in the office, like the actuaries and the economists. And uh, But they're not playing around. I, I still, I'm joking with that ending. 
I still <laughs> think that there is a pathway for the first time in my life. So I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to take, <laughs> I'm going to take Dave Roberts' positivity and I'm going to, I'm going to replace it and be thankful for it. Possibly the first time that phrase has ever been uttered aloud in, in all of human history. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on again and, and just wrapping through this and, uh, you know, let's hope 2024 is not as dystopic as it could be. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. Uh, I, you're, you're one of the voices out there I trust. And, uh, and thank you. I needed this after uh, <laughs> being uh, attacked uh, like Bruce Lee by about 20 different <laughs> on Twitter. Yes. Uh, so always remember, never tweet. There's never been a wiser maxim to follow <laughs> in one's life than never tweet. Such a pleasure, man. Thanks. See you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.